Hello, and welcome to this live recording from Mount Pleasant Baptist Church. This message was given by Dan Rogers at our Burragoon campus. So sit back, listen in, and enjoy what God's got to say to you. Well, good evening, everyone. It's wonderful to be here with you tonight. We're making our way through a series called The Heart of Kings, and tonight I get to round us off as we narrow in on the King of Kings. I was talking to Simon about this a couple of weeks ago, and there really just was no other way that we could finish this series. We're going to look at Josiah. Who cares about Josiah? We booted him. Josiah's gone. We're looking at Jesus, all right? It's better. It's going to be great. Fantastic. When we look at Jesus, we instantly think about the kingdom of God. You know, the kingdom of God is a theme that you can trace throughout the entirety of Scripture. It starts in Genesis, where we get to see the blessing and life that exists under the rule and reign of God. And then it finishes in Revelation, where that rule is once again established over all of creation. That's our hope. That's what we look forward to. But in the middle is all the stuff that we're more familiar with. Now, there's just way too much for us to look at in one sermon. So I'm just going to focus in on one passage tonight. You could summarize so much of the biblical story as a war between two kingdoms. And the core of Jesus' message was the kingdom of God is here. So repent and believe. No longer are we a part of the kingdom of darkness. We've been grafted into the kingdom of light. And so the question is, what kind of king is Jesus? That's what we're going to be focusing on tonight. We're going to jump into Philippians 2 focus in on the cross to discover the goodness of our King and our God. But before we go any further, why don't we read our passage? Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Awesome. Thank you. It's a beautiful passage of Scripture. It's got to be one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible. And I just want to give you a little bit of context for our passage tonight. Paul is speaking to the Philippian church, and the heart of his message is a call to live a life worthy of the gospel. In the midst of of persecution and hardship, this is what Paul says. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, if the gospel means anything to you, if salvation and all that God has done on your behalf means anything to you at all, then make my joy complete and be of one mind and accord. In other words, he's calling them to humility and oneness. That's how they're going to shine. That's how they're going to continue to press on in the midst of struggle, in humility and love as one people. So then we get to verse 5. Paul wants to give them an example. So he says, look at Jesus. 
You want an example of what this looks like, then all you have to do is look at the king. That in his life we see the ultimate example of humility and love and sacrifice. And so he calls us to fix our eyes on him. This is our king. In verse 6 he says that he was and is in very nature God. The ESV says that he was in, that he's in the form of God. And that word is morphe. means that he possessed inwardly and displayed outwardly the very nature of God. And that word very is actually there in the Greek to emphasize that Jesus is really and truly in his personal and essential nature God. There's no doubt that before the world began, Jesus was. And outside of the Trinity, he finds no equal. That doesn't mean that he's cold or, or distant in any way. In fact, we find the very opposite. And Paul says that he didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Now, once again, the ESV translates it pretty differently. It says that he did not consider equality something to be grasped, to, to be clung to at all costs. But I actually think that both of these translations come together to give us a fuller picture of what Paul is trying to say. That Jesus didn't cling to it. And when he talks about equality... Now he's talking about the Son's co-possession with the Father and the Spirit of the eternal divine glory that is innately his as God. That's what he's talking about when he says equality. And I want to define glory for you. It's a word that we use all the time, right? And people nod their head and go, mm, yeah, that's good. I like that. But most people have no idea what that word actually means. So I don't know what they're nodding for. They're just kind of agreeing because that's the thing that you're supposed to do in church, right? But this is God's glory. God's glory is his perfection, his goodness, his kindness, his mercy and grace and love and justice and righteousness on display for the world to see. That's God's glory. It's his perfection made manifest for all the world to see. That's the glory of God. And Paul says that Jesus didn't cling to it. It wasn't like he was up in the clouds looking down at the brokenness of our world, thinking to himself, you know what, I'd really like to help. It's ugly down there. There's brokenness and death everywhere. Sin has ruined everything. And I mean, I could help. I could do something about it, but that means that I'd have to sacrifice my glory. And I, I just don't know that I care that much. It's kind of a big deal. It's my glory, right? That's just not who Jesus is. That he refuses to use his own glory as a reason to stay uninvolved. In other words, he's not clinging to it so tightly that he can't wrap his arms around the brokenness of our world. He didn't see it as as some kind of thing to be used to his own advantage. He didn't see it as a, a matter of privilege. It was something that he was willing to give for the sake of the world. That's our king. 
He's radiant in glory. He's majestic and holy. His power is incomprehensible. And his very presence is overwhelming. But he's also gentle and kind. He cares genuinely. Genuinely cares about our world, about us. He's truly good. And the depth of his love is displayed in all that he was willing to give up that he might redeem you and me. So we're going to pick it up in verse 7. This is what Paul goes to. He is fully God. And then in verse 7, he didn't use it to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Instead of clinging to a quality, Jesus made himself nothing. I really want you to notice that it doesn't say that God made him nothing. As if this was something that was imposed upon him by this cruel father. No, it says that Jesus made himself nothing. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. Jesus is walking in humble obedience to the Father as he empties himself. That's what the Greek says there. He didn't cling to equality. He emptied himself. Question is, what did he empty himself of? There's a whole lot of controversy around this. I love it, right? I love it when all the scholars start to disagree. It's fantastic. But what is Paul saying? Verses 7 and 8 are talking about Jesus' humanity. And it makes sense to us that something happened as the God of the universe became a man. But it's not that hard for us to fall into absolute heresy if we start talking about Jesus emptying himself of his divinity or anything like that. That's not it. That he was and is and always will be fully God, divine. That's not what Paul is talking about. That Jesus made himself nothing as he emptied himself of the manifest power and glory that are rightfully his. Just to give you an idea of what that is, it's the same glory that Moses got a glimpse of. You might remember the story in Exodus. Moses asked God to show him his glory. And God says this, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord Yahweh, in your presence. I have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. Such is the intensity of God's glory. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. 
In the next chapter, God does exactly that. And it says that Moses immediately fell to the ground in worship. And what else are you supposed to do when you're confronted with the glory of God? It's overwhelming. And it breaks down every barrier and arrests our soul. And we see God in all of his glory, all of his majesty. That's what Jesus gave up. That his manifest glory was veiled as he took on humanity and set himself before a life of service. And I don't think we really understand how big of a deal that is. That Jesus lowered himself for our benefit. The same God who breathed out the stars embraced the frailty of humanity. And we see that all throughout the gospels. He was tired. No longer was he omnipresent. He had to walk like the rest of us. I don't know if he hated it as much as I do, but that's what he had to do. He had to walk everywhere. Paul says he was made in human likeness. And he uses that terminology because even though Jesus was truly human, he stood apart from the rest of humanity because of his perfection. He's not putting any doubt on Jesus' humanity. That's not what he's doing. He was fully man. In fact, he's the ultimate example of what humanity was always meant to be, but he's also more. He's our savior and our king. That he who knew no sin became sin, that in him we might be the righteousness of God. And in the same way that he possessed inwardly and displayed outwardly the very nature of God, he embraced the very nature of a servant. It's the same word that's used there. And I actually think that translation is a bit weak because the word that's used there isn't servant, it's slave. But he embraced the very nature of a slave. He lowered himself that he might redeem his precious creation. But as he came down from glory, he didn't just stop with humanity, he became a slave. And he didn't just stop with slavery, no, he died. And he didn't just stop with death, no, he died the most horrific, pain-filled and shameful death there is that Jesus went to the very bottom, to the very bottom for you And for me, that he was obedient, not to death, but to the point of death. It's not that death had any power over him. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And in the depths of his humility and sacrifice, we see the depth of his love. It's life-changing. You know, there's a story about a man named Maximilian Colby. I just learned today that it's actually one of Mike's heroes. There you go. He was a priest. He was born in 1860, or 1894, sorry. His father was German and his mother was Polish. Encountered the Lord really early on in life. So at age 13, he went to seminary, which is kind of amazing. I don't think I would have wanted to be at seminary at 13, right? 
And he took his final vows as a monk in 1914 and went on to do a whole bunch of other things. But eventually, he ended up back in Poland. If you know your history, you know that in 1939, Poland was overrun by the Nazi regime. And because of that, Maximilian was arrested under general suspicion. In other words, he was just causing issues for the Nazi because he wasn't supportive. He was released a couple of months later, but over the next couple of years, he worked tirelessly to feed, clothe, and hide over 3,000 refugees, many of whom were Jewish, Polish or Jewish. He even spoke out against the Nazi regime through his newspaper, which was incredibly bold. As you can imagine, they didn't like that. In 1949, he was arrested again, except this time he was sent to Auschwitz concentration camp and branded prisoner 16670. And as you can imagine, it's horrific. You all probably would have seen documentaries, absolutely horrific. The prisoners were forced to work all day building the very gas chambers and crematoriums that they'd eventually be executed in. Can you imagine the, the horrific nature of that and how that would play on your psyche? He was beaten and left for dead on a number of occasions, and yet through all of this, his faith never wavered. And as credible as that is, that's actually not why he's famous. Now, he's famous because he was willing to make the ultimate sacrifice. In July 1941, three prisoners escaped the camp and it was an embarrassment to the Nazi commanders. Of course it was. So in response, they ordered that 10 men to be chosen at random. And they'd make an example out of them. So they ordered that 10 men would be sentenced to death by starvation as they were locked in this underground bunker. It's horrific, horrific stuff. The story goes on that when a man named Francis was selected, he cried out for his wife and kids. And when Maximilian heard this, he was so moved that he volunteered to take this man's place. It's an incredible act of self-sacrifice. And the amazing thing is that that man survived, survived that camp. And he actually went on to write a book. And in his book, this is what he says. I think this is profound. As this complete stranger steps forward to take his place, he says this, that I could only thank him with my eyes, that I was stunned and could hardly grasp what was going on, the immensity of it. I, the condemned, am to live and someone else willingly and voluntarily offers his life for me, a stranger. Is this some kind of dream? John 15 says, greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for one's friends. This amazing man, Maximilian, laid down his life for a complete stranger and it blows us away. It's this incredible act of love and humility and self-sacrifice. But Jesus laid down his life for his enemies. Romans 5.8 says this, But God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, while we still lived in in open rebellion towards God, while we spit in his face, while we hated him and wanted nothing to do with him, Christ died for us. And there is something beautiful about that. Something powerful about that. It cuts to the very core 
and shows us the character and nature of this God, this King, that he would do that for us. We're going to finish it with verse 9. So this is God's response. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every other name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we get to verse nine and Paul uses the word therefore which means that everything that follows is built on the foundation of what we've just read. Because of his humility and sacrifice, because he lowered himself and was obedient even to the point of death, God exalted him to the highest place. And I want you to notice how that stands in contrast to verse 7. In verse seven, it says that Jesus humbled himself, made himself nothing. And then here we are in verse nine, and it says that God, the Father, exalted his son to the highest place. And it gives us this beautiful picture, this insight into the Trinity and the relationship that is there. There's a unity of purpose and mind. The father sends the son. The son humbles himself and obeys, even to the point of death. And the father elevates him and glorifies him. So what does the son do? He sends the spirit to be our helper, our seal of salvation, and the spirit obeys. It's this beautiful picture of relationship, unity, Unity of purpose, unity of mind. There's no competition. They love and serve and honor one another. They lift up one another. And here in verse nine, God the Father takes center stage as he exalts the Son to the highest place. It doesn't mean that Jesus is now somehow greater than the Father or the Spirit. Because let's be honest, there is no greater than God. You don't go up from there. That's it. The highest place is God. So what the Father is really doing is restoring to Jesus everything that was rightfully his, everything that he'd emptied himself of for us, that he might redeem us. Where he was once a slave, Jesus now stands in authority over all things. In fact, he was given the name that is above every other name. And that's saying something, because I don't know if you've noticed, but God has a fair few names. We get two, three, maybe four if you're selfish. And God has like 50 names. I kid you not, there's a lot of names. Every one of them is significant. Every one of them reveals something of God's character and nature. Every one of them is beautiful. There's Abba, our Father, Yahweh, the great I am, Lord. There's El Roy, the God who sees. El Shaddai, the mighty one. Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who provides. He's the ancient of days. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He's all of these things. And yet the name that stands above all of those 
is the name of Jesus. That there is power in the name of Jesus. That people are healed in the name of Jesus. That demons flee in the name of Jesus. Lives are changed in the name of Jesus. There is power in his name. That it is a name above every other name. So Paul says at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven, on earth, under the earth. In other words, it doesn't matter where you are, it doesn't matter who you are, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Lord. We call Jesus Lord a lot. We sing about the fact that he's the Lord. I don't know if we always understand what that means. That word means master. The one who is supreme in authority. That Jesus is Lord. That's why I love this passage. Because it gives us this holistic, this complete picture of who Jesus is. He's our savior and our friend. He's the lamb that was slain. But he's also king. He's the king. And it's not right to talk about one without talking about the other. He is king over all of creation, king over this church, king over your life. He's the king. Isaiah 45 says this, let all the world look to me for salvation, for I am God, there is no other. And I have sworn by my name, I have spoken the truth and I will never go back on my word. Every knee will bend to me and every tongue will declare allegiance to me. And the people will declare the Lord is the source of all my righteousness and strength. And all who are angry with him will come to him and be ashamed because you can say what you want, but he's the king. In the Lord, all the generations of Israel will be justified and in him they will boast because he's the king. I want to invite the band to come back up and to lead us in worship. But here's what I think God is wanting to say tonight. I look at this passage and there's some beautiful truth in here. I think God wants to say every knee will bow. Jesus is the king. And one day every eye will see that. Face to face with the glory of God, there is no such thing as unbelief. It doesn't exist. It's not a matter of if, it is a matter of when. You either bend the knee now and experience the blessing and life that exists under the rule and reign of God or you bend it on the day of judgment. But either way, you will bend the knee. Everyone will. So what's it gonna be? When are you gonna bend the knee to the king of kings? I've said it before, but I reckon surrender is probably one of the biggest stumbling blocks for people in our culture. We're so individualistic, so consumed with self and the God of freedom surely will bring us life, right? The surrender seems like suicide. And yet this is a part of the upside down kingdom of God that in death we find life. 
in surrender, we find freedom. And in bending the knee, we rediscover what it means to co-rule with Christ. And in that meaning and purpose and the fullness of life. Every knee will bow, but you can't bend the knee while you're sitting on the throne. So I believe God wants to say, every knee will bow, but you can't bend the knee while you're sitting on the throne. And it leads us to a place of surrender. We have no choice but to say, hey, Jesus, not my will, not my way, Jesus, you're the king. And I'm inviting you to sit on the throne of my heart. That needs an invitation, but there's something in here that happens when actually we surrender and we invite Jesus, who is the king, to sit on the throne. Lead me into life as you take over, as you rule and reign in my life. This is what we're going to do. We're going to take communion together in just a moment. But I want you to spend some time meditating on the sacrifice that the King of Kings made for you. And all that that says about who he is. And what it would look like to live under his rule and reign. And then when you're ready, I want you to come down and take the bread and the juice. But I want you to hold it. As we're going to take communion together, is a symbol of our surrendering. It's a symbol of submission. That together as one people, we would surrender and say, Jesus, this, this is our significant, our symbol that you are king. We hope you enjoyed this message from Mount Pleasant Baptist Church. If you'd like to talk to someone about what you've heard today, then you can contact the team at Mount Pleasant Baptist Church by calling the office during office hours on 9329-1777. Thanks for joining us. We look forward to your company again soon. God bless.